Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. During this new episode of Founder Series, we're sitting down with Grant Canary, founder and CEO of DroneSeed. DroneSeed is on a mission to make reforestation scalable and mitigate the worst effects of climate change. To do this, they are using heavy leaf drone swarms to reforest after wildfires. Droneseed has also recently acquired subsidiary Silvaseed, which has expanded to be the largest private seed bank on the West Coast. The company is now a one-stop shop for reforestation, providing seed, seedlings, aerial seeding, and financing via carbon credits. I was excited to speak with Grant, an incredible entrepreneur passionate about nature, water polo, climate change, and sustainability, whose career began as a consultant in the energy sector across US, China, and Denmark. Following this, Grant then started a successful food tech startup in Colombia that used food waste to feed insect larvae to create industrial fish feed. The startup was then later acquired prior to starting drone seed. In this episode, we will learn more about the carbon offset market for reforestation, its exciting growth today, the certification mechanism in place to ensure carbon is really stored, and the greenwashing controversy that can come with big emitters leveraging carbon offsets. Together, we will cover the initial challenges of building drone seed, 
there. Lessons learned along the way and the company need for developing an integrated model from the seeds to offsets. We also go deeper into the potential and opportunities that drone assisting wildfire reforestation efforts as in the climate crisis, especially if it's made available at scale. Finally, Grant will share the next steps necessary in achieving his vision and how you can get involved. During the second part of the talk, Grant will give his secret sauce for early stage founders looking to fundraise by relating to his own successful fundraising journey with Drone Seed. Finally, he will share some of the books he learned from and his own work-life balance tips for busy founders. Grant, welcome to the show. Hi, Grant. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about uh, what you guys are up to with Drone Seed. So welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to join. So before we start, that's uh, the tradition now. Can you give us a 30 second uh, intro about uh, Drone Seed? Yeah, so we have Drone Seed and we have Silva Seed. We are a vertically integrated reforestation company. Uh, drone Seed, the part everyone is hyper-focused on and really loves. We utilize heavy lift drone swarms to reforest after wildfires and we pay for it with carbon offsets. On the silver seed side, um, there's no real seed in, you know, there's no drone seed without the seed. So you basically like we collect seed, uh, we process it and then we grow millions of seedlings and um, we're the largest private seed bank west of Colorado in the U.S. and grow millions and are doubling that production output. So let's start from the from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your you know personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides growing drone seed or growing trees? I would say, uh, what makes you feel inspired or like your your best self? As I always ask, like who is Grant? <laughs> um, I mean, as a little kid, my my childhood heroes lived in the woods, played in the woods, um, and so Robin Hood. Um, Swiss Family Robinson, um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So various like sort of like uh, adventure stories. And I love building forts. Um, so that's me as like a snapshot of a little kid. Like I was a swimmer, um, water polo player, and like the, the swim center where we had five state regional competitions, I would be out building creek, you know, splashing around, building sort of small little rock dams in the creek between my events um so that's like a little bit sort of about me and then fast forward uh, i mean everything i've i've done or focused on has been on sustainability and that's something to me that's like a, a deep passionate um uh, a deep passion for me is is uh how we how we protect preserve but also grow to expand and embrace like what's the like solar punk future that um that we that we strive for um i love things that are that are coming at build a future for the greater good so i'm very much the person who's really excited about the latest in anything from from the yes there's the tech side but there's also some really not tech stuff that's very old school like co-housing and how do people like live in communities um bike lanes uh, how we do urban infrastructure Um, so yeah, those are all things that, you know, current currency before crypto is very excited about a lot of what that looks like, still excited today. So, yeah. That's exciting. So t tell us a bit more about, and you, you started to touch uh, on a little bit about your different, I would say like work and, and life experience in general, because, you know, sometimes uh, life is definitely included in, into, into work. So prior 
to the launch of Drone Seed. I mean, I saw that you, you spent time in China, in Denmark, working in the energy sector, and then you started an insect company in Colombia, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Uh, so what did you learn along that way that in a way would have, you know, you would have not learned if you had a different journey? And, and, and I believe that gives you an edge maybe to, to start Drone Seed. Yeah. Um, I, so I lived 10 years abroad. Uh, and I guess to, to sort of link those two things, like how did I get there? Well, I, on the sustainability side, like I had an English professor who helped me kind of find my personal compass, my values, uh, or in, in high school. And then I had friends later on in life to help me put that into words, which is, you know, very much like climate change is the problem that all problems report to. And there's a lot of people out there who are working on really difficult problems, but if our ecosystems start to collapse, then the social, economic, political, educational systems that are that, that they underwrite are are also going to you know collapse. And we could look at this uh, historically with the Dust Bowl, uh, droughts and poor land use management, or for a less like U.S. centric example, like the Great Hunger in China. Again, drought and poor land use management. So those two things um, contributed to mass upheaval, uh, climate refugees, uh, deaths from starvation. And so those are big, those are, you know, I kind of look at that and from the negative from, and then from the positive, like, I guess where I went with this was what, what can I do? And so um, I, I went abroad to a program in Italy and then transferred to a program in Colombia um, to get a master's degree and uh, was part of a very large um, consulting project for tree planting in Colombia to uh, scale up a UN pilot project of 20 years. And then from there took one of the technologies that was incorporated in that project, the project didn't go forward um, and figured out how to import equipment uh, from Vietnam, hire four research teams, build a pilot facility and take food waste uh, feed it to maggots. Uh, so I have a, I'm, an, I'm a maggot farmer here. Um, and, uh, and then turn that into industrial protein for fish feed. I mean, this is not like the sort of consumer, uh, this is very much, how do we alleviate pressures on the smallest fish in the ecosystem that are getting caught and chopped up and turned into food for industrial fish farming, which is the, one of the most efficient, uh, forms of conversion of plant mass to, um, or rather food to tons for human population. And then how do we go from there? And then how do we, how do we, how do we use a waste byproduct food waste uh, to do that? So that's where I got started. And then Vestas Wind Energy, you know, that company got acquired. Vestas Wind Energy then paid me to go around the world to China, Denmark, and the U.S. And then I came to work for the acquirer of the, of the company in Canada and we first built, you know, took it from the lab to a 6,000 square foot uh, pilot to a 60,000 square foot maggot factory. Uh, and now they're still going strong at, you know, 200,000 square feet plus. So pretty excited about, um, you know, sort of seeing them on that journey. I very much wanted to make a direct dent in carbons in the atmosphere. Uh, and so I uh, started to focus and go through what's a, a difficult journey for people who are going through it right now. My, you know, emp empathetic to that, which is like, how do I, as an individual, make a dent in in emissions? And like that's so big because it comes from power supply, it comes from from auto and uh, transport sector, it comes from buildings. So many areas where that it's really hard as an individual. And so, 
started working on that, started focusing on how, how can I do that? And uh, I came up with a bunch of really bad ideas. People told me they were bad ideas. I was reading Eric Risley and Startup at the time. And because I was creating those mock-ups, I was putting products in front of people, doing a one-week sprint and being like, what about this? Would you be interested? They're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't spend five years of your life on that. I do not want that product in my life. I am not going to give you money. I was like, wait, but you know, you care deeply about the environment too. I don't, nope, I don't want that. Not, not that way. Let's go a different direction. Try something else. And so, um, you know, for people going through that journey, you know, very sympathetic. I, I had sympathetic friends. They very much were trying to cheer me up in a, in a way that, you know, some friends do, which is basically talking smack and, and saying, well, I guess you're going to go plant trees. And I had been part of that big tree planting project and had been impressed with the level of scale. And I started digging into how we did it in my, you know, country of origin, the US and was like, okay, well, like, what's the pain points? What's the problems? I started reaching out in a really big way there. And I I was kind of surprised that it was so manual given all of the automation that's in that's in logging. And so I started asking like what's been tried? What's what 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 are the pain points? And so that's you know, we could talk more about that. But that's that's yeah, exactly. what got me kind of going on my journey. And, that, and that's super exciting and thanks for sharing all of that and I think uh, we'll go deeper into the, the really like the, the genesis of uh, of drone seed and I think you started to uh, uncover that so that's uh, that's very exciting but in all of that um, I mean what has been your in a way driver to jump into the, the, the climate tech industry and you cover that but any like specific haha moment that you can recall or would define as such um I th I mean I think it was just always something that I cared about the trees and I, and I, um, the, like, just going back to children's books, like I, when I saw trees get cleared for a housing development, it kind of made me sad because I knew I had been educated on how long for in the, in the Northwest where I live in Oregon and Washington, that like how long it had taken those trees to grow. And that to me seemed, um, I, it caused me internal anguish that they had, um, that they, that they had been cut. So before we, we start going into details about uh, drone seed, we'd like to zoom out, uh, and kind of understand the overall context that, uh, you are navigating. I mean, on one side, uh, you have the reforestation landscape, including now the, the seed bank on the other side, uh, you have recently joined what I call the, the carbon offset market. Uh, so mm -hmm. we'd like to, to dig a little bit and double click on, on that side of, uh, of the, the, I would say the landscape that uh, Drone City is navigating today. So first, let's try to, to get your uh, overview on the carbon offset landscape today. I mean, what are the, the challenges and, and opportunities that, uh, that you see in the market and, and who are the main players, meaning buyers and, and, and providers? Yeah. So I think, I mean, my, my objectives are that people have an idea around the offset market, that it's not like a binary, that it's, uh, that it's, that it's either like, it's good or it's bad or whatnot. I would, I would, you know, for a mental thought experiment, I would give people the idea that like, that's sort of like thinking about like currency dollars or euros being uh, good or bad. Like, yes, they can be used to facilitate criminal transactions, but they can also be used for humanitarian aid. So it's really like more of a tool or accounting. It's sort of like calling accounting good or bad. 
Um, so offsets very much can be used the same way. And so, and there's different offsets that have different, um, different values to society in the sense of how, what is the duration of their impact? What's their, what's their permanence or like how much value are they adding? What's the additionality? And so I think like what, where we are at is that, um, we're really excited to be doing one of the first five projects and generating offsets for reforestation. We do reforestation after wildfire. So very clearly additional. Um, and what we've been seeing is that normally you would think like, oh, forest burns, forest regrows, like it's not a problem. Well, it used to be nine times out of 10, that was the case. But now we're seeing with the size and severities in the, in the US and elsewhere of the, the fires, that the how many acres burn each year, the 10 year rolling average has gone up significantly from around 2 million acres to about 7 million acres. And that is about the size of the state of New Jersey extra burning each year. And so now we're starting to see natural regeneration drop to like uh, every six out of 10 times it'll regrow. Every four times out of 10, it'll regrow. It depends on the species, it depends on the ecosystems. But um, that's really concerning because then we end up with 10 foot tall bush. A lot of times invasive, scotch broom, Himalayan blackberries, et cetera. So more likely to burn and because uh, it's not accustomed to drying out. So that's kind of where we fit in the additionality is that like we do really important work in reforestation and nearly all, like 99.99% of projects that are offsets in the past have been easements on existing stands of trees. And this has come from an abundance of caution about not wanting to be seen as greenwashing. So the carbon is stored and the trees are old and mature and that's good. It protects those trees. But what it is not doing is paying for reforestation because under the same methodologies, you had to wait 25 years for the trees to grow. Then you could get your offsets, but you had to pay all the upfront costs. Meanwhile, uh, you're, you're competing with 25 years of compounded interest, which is you know all of a sudden very expensive. So nobody, like virtually nobody did that. And so we're now seeing with Climate Action Reserve that they have a very robust program. They're playing the same role as U.S. Green Building Council or UL uh, Labs. They're, they're a third party trusted provider that's a, that's a nonprofit. And their whole goal is to basically create a trustworthy, transparent system. And they've been doing it for a really long time. They're one of the top three with Gold Standard and Vera. Um, and so what they do is they take a look and say, let's look at all of the, uh, let's look at all the prior work that's been done in, in timber and say, how many two by fours am I going to get off this acre of land? It's Doug fir. It's in Western Oregon. Um, let's substitute out two by fours with tons of carbon and we'll create a projection of how many tons of carbon will be removed by a species or multiple species in a region. Um, and then we can make it really conservative on what the forecast will be for the next hundred years. And so everybody knows what the forecast is. Everybody it's, it's based off of the white paper science of what that looks like. And so you can go in and for us, like we have a project, it's been burned. It's, uh, it's in Western Oregon and we've got eight different species going into it. And so we can now make that projection of this is how many tons are going to be removed over the next hundred years. So that's the first part, like, uh -huh. what does the system look like for reforestation? Second part is, well, how do you build in the trust mechanisms around it? Um, what are all the like, the things that make 
it something that people can say, oh, okay, good. Like, I, I believe 100 years is a long time that this forest will still be here. Well, so number one, the best way to utilize the project is that you put an easement. You get the most amount of offsets if you put an easement, which is a legal lien on the property, um, into, uh, onto, the, onto the land. And that's a, that's a property right. Well, who holds the easement? A state accredited land trust. Um, what's their job? Their job is to write an annual report saying what's the condition, is there a forest there, is it the right species, etc. every year, and then go out and visit it for every five years for the next hundred years. Well, how do they keep the money to pay for that? Well, as a part of the project setup, they get an endowment. So just like a university, there is a, a chunk of cash that goes to them. And then they aggregate that with other projects that they monitor, invested in the market, and that way that keeps them financially uh, solvent for the next 100 years. Um, so that's kind of the first part. Well, what happens if it burns? What happens if there's a beetle kill? Whatever. Um, very similar to insurance, their Climate Action Reserve does the very, um, right now it's we're the first of five projects, so this has not yet been set up, but this is where their other methodologies have been set up and they have functioned and worked over the last decade or so. Um, but the projects take a percentage of the offsets that they would generate and put them into an insurance pool um, around 10%. And so that 10% is then if there is a project that is affected, those offsets are retired. Um, and so every new project coming in, just like insurance, like contributes to the pool and makes it so that there's um, a, you know, an insurance mechanism for that. Um, well, how do you know that like after a year, the trees grew, uh, they're not dead, that, like who goes out and checks this? Well, there's the land trust and we covered that. But in order to even get the offsets from the beginning, there's a third party uh, forester that has to be independent and approved by car. It goes out and checks that um, there's the right quantity of seedlings growing, uh, the, the right species, the right density. And they use old school forestry techniques. They create a you know, 10, dia 10 meter circle, they go out there, they count them all. And those 10 meter circles, you know, across thousands of acres are a sampling method. So that's kind of the, like, all of that, like, goes into this as far as making sure that there's a trustworthy system that, um, and they're on version 2.0. So like, as things need to be adjusted, um, that is, that is, um, that's something that, that can be done. Um, and so we really think that people should hold a a percentage of the seed for the project because for the duration of the hundred years as well. And so that's something that we're advocating for because seeds are scarce, grow space like nursery, grow space, greenhouses are scarce, uh, labor uh, needs better tools. And then this is providing all of the finance to cover the very expensive upfront costs of reforestation, um, which is really exciting. So, I mean, and you mentioned thanks so, so much for covering the um, I mean the certification uh, and this trust mm -hmm. mechanism that uh, that is put in place uh, in a way to ensure that uh, the CO2 offset that has been purchased is uh, effectively taking out out of the air. But how efficient is the the offset market as of today? I mean, hearing you, all the certification part sounds very like heavy heavy lifting and and still like. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1.0 uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, efficiency. Uh, what is blocking in, in a way the, the market? I mean, I see that probably the, the certification part is slowing it down, but is it like on the buyer side and in a way the supplier side as well? It's, what is slowing it down? Is like maybe a need of a new regulation that can 
push and incentivize uh, this market, uh, you know, growth in a way? Or is it like new, you know, providers, buyers? Uh, what What is your take there? Yeah. Um, the, well, I would say that the market is taking off. It's going incredibly strong in the sense of, it, I think 20, look at Refinitiv, R-E-F-I-N-I-T-I-V. Um, they're an analyst group, they're EU-based, and their an assessment was that for uh, 2021, market size was uh, $270 plus billion. That's compliance and voluntary. Uh, fast forward to, to, um, to uh, sorry, 20, that was 2020. 2021, fast forward, you're looking at $800 billion plus. Um, and that's a like tremendous year on year growth. And the 270 number had already increased significantly from where we were at in 2019. So the, the EU is really representing a big bulk of that. But then what we're also starting to see is the California market has been around since uh, 2008 earlier. And so what we see is that, um, that, that the California market learned from Kyoto Protocol and put a floor on the market so that the price of offsets wouldn't fluctuate um, as much. And then the Washington state just passed a, uh, a market. Oregon is ready to go, but through, through some leg legislative issues, uh, they, don't, they have not had quorum to pass that. Um, so the entire West Coast um, is likely to have a carbon offset market in the, um, in the near future here. And then Canada just uh, won a court case after two years, and they now have the right to establish a federal carbon market. So that's something that we see is, um, so that's, that's exciting um, to have all of that occurring and happening. So, yeah. So to, to close this, uh, this section, I mean, as everyone mm -hmm. knows, uh, there's a lot of like bad press and, and controversy around carbon offsetting. And you mentioned that, uh, that as well. So according to you, what, what is the real impact of it on climate change in itself? I mean, why does it need to exist? or not or is it more like a mm -hmm. buzz and greenwashing tool for big emitters that can leverage to in a way to look better well so i mean i would take take uh issue or uh, i would take umbrage with uh kind of like that there's been a lot of bad press i mean i think one of the things is that like yes there have been there have been cases where um there has been offsets that have been utilized and that people don't necessarily like the where that leads as far as like a journey um, where there's an, there's uh, there's the ability to pollute and then there's the ability to sort of continue with business as usual. Um, yeah, and that, that was more even that in that was like, uh, yeah, at. even in that sense, yeah, even in that sense of things, like it's still affecting acting as a tax. It's not as good as what could be done. And so what we would like to see is that that is that the offsets are utilized for like, it's really important that there is a way as we move forward that we're able to take care of that sort of last 20% of effort that occurs. Um, meaning that like, say you're, a, you know, Amazon um, or another large tech company and you have like transport and logistics in your supply chain. Like if you, like it is going to be very difficult, like, yes, they, there should be a full faith, good intentioned effort to decarbonize everything, electrify everything. Um, the, the buy all the Rivian vans that can be can be acquired, uh, etc. 
And, but there's going to be some things that like call it 80, 20 rule eight. Yeah. Let's, let's decarbonize the 80%, but there's going to be 20%. It's going to take longer. It's going to take a long, it's going to take a while to electrify aviation. And, um, that that is something that until that is accomplished and i'm very like excited to see electric jets hydrogen others go in but it, they're it's it's not going to happen overnight we should be pushing for it to be happening as fast as possible but the but the until that occurs how can we account for and be focusing on removal removals and so that's where offsets come in in that regard and the other thing that I think is really important is like offsets today are a high quality. Um, the, the offsets we do are nature based and they're high quality uh, and they are and they are actually doing removal. And so if we look at um, other technologies out there, again, it's a yes and it's an all of the above. I'm excited about those technologies and, they, and we need all of them. Um, but reforestation is available today. And also, like, we are not right now, like, if natural regeneration is in decline because of climate change, which we as a, as a species have caused, then we very much need to figure out, well, how are we going to continue to assist and fill the gap and regenerate forests that are burning faster than they are restoring? And that is, that is, you know, there in order to do that, the way that as a society, as a people, as a species that we direct effort, time, material resources, brain power is through currency. And it's, uh, so it's very much like if we want to direct that effort in that way, we need to connect, we need to connect it with, well, what are the bio, what are the impacts on the ecosystems? And one of those measurable impacts is removal of carbon. Um, so that's connecting those two systems in a really significant way um, is important. Like I, I would, I would refer to folks. There's a great Ted talk about how trees in their root systems talk to each other. And um, the, there was a previous sort of thought that like, Oh, there's like competitions and the trees are like duking it out in the forest for who can get the most light. I'm like, to some extent, like, yes, there is competition, but like with this particular like trial, like what they were able to do is they were able to see by um, putting uh, a radioactive isotope in the ground that they could then measure with a carbon with a Geiger counter that like basically like they, they put the tree in a bag, they gave it the radioactive material as a gas, they saw it like get absorbed utilizing a Geiger counter and then were able to see it get transferred to other species underground. So we think about that as like very much like and then transfer it back and forth as the trees went through different stressors or periods of their life, et cetera, uh, seasons. So the, the thing that I would say is that, you know, humans very much with currency dollars, it's very similar to the nutrients being passed back and forth between trees. And then what we want to accomplish is to connect those two things so that we're actually connecting dollars to biological impact of carbon removal. So that's like my very high level philosophical approach of like, how do we come into greater harmony with nature with our own systems and it's by literally valuing um it, not just philosophically and morally but also with value dollars where we spend our time and effort in cultivating um and that's that's that is a really powerful way to create a sustainable source of reforestation long rant sorry <laughs> <laughs> no worries thank you so much for uh, covering all of those uh, important aspects and 
you know, dipping this little philosophical uh, touch. Excuse me about that one. So let's go deeper into the into drone seat. Uh, what is the and you started to to cover that a little bit, but what is the story behind it? I mean, um, and and in a way, what was the initial gap that you uh, identified uh, at first in the I would say that the reforestation landscape, because that's that was exactly the the initial, uh, uh, I mean, initial solution that you uh, you developed. And and for who is uh, mm-hmm. is drone seed today? I mean, why in a way drone seeds should exist? Yeah. All right, well, so the, this this hits to my my second goal. My first goal being that people have a deeper understanding of offsets, and my second goal, how can we get more people to to lend their time and talents to um, uh, taking on climate change and mitigating its worst effects? So, so uh, hopefully, my story will serve here to that second goal, which is that like uh, we we left off in a in a in a conversation where my friends teasing me about, um, I guess you're gonna go plant trees. And so, I mean, for me, I looked at what were all of the things that had been, I, I called up everybody that I could, uh, that was in the forestry sector, the silviculture reforestation, and was talking to them about like, what had been tried? What were their pain points? Like, where, why was there so little automation in reforestation? Because today it's, it's humans carrying 40 pound bags of trees on their, on the, on their hips and then utilizing a shovel and they're superheroes. They burn the caloric equivalent of running two marathons every day. And there's the white paper out there and occupational medicine journals to prove it. And so like you look at it and you're like, okay, wow, that seems really inefficient. And wow, there's a high churn for people to be doing this work because people just get physically exhausted. So, um, you know, in Canada, it's college students. It's because their planting season in the sun is in the summer. Um, in the U.S., it's largely migrant labor, um, and so like, how do we how do we provide better tools? Um, and so one of the things is the terrain. A lot of trees are in mountainous terrain because that's really not great uh, as far as the slope for farmland or for development of of cities or homes or otherwise. And so like that is that is where that is where trees have been um, left to be. And so that's what causes those wind spreads and that caloric burn. So started to like ask around that, okay, well, what about drones, et cetera. And so a lot of the focus there was on, um, well, how we, you know, drones can fly, they navigate the train quickly. Well, from there, how can we best utilize drones? What's been tried, et cetera. And there were, there were things that were tried in the seventies when helicopters uh, were coming around. There was a lot of them from Vietnam. There was a lot of pilots that had been trained and so like there were tree machine guns in the back of uh, it, tr- like transport planes. There were helicopters trying to focus on things. And so like there was a lot of like it was just it was not very localized. I mean, it wasn't a micro sighting, which is an industry term to say, like, did it put a tree or a tree seed where the tree has the highest probability of growing, a.k.a. like if you're if you're using a C-17 and just dropping these across the landscape in a little like sort of like tree bomb um, and you're picturing like it's a, a seedling grown, you know, a, a year or so it's you're dumping them in lakes in mature forests on gravel roads, et cetera. And also like the impact of that tree on the ground, like trees don't do well with impacts. There's all kinds of white papers out there saying like a one-year-old tree drops six feet off the back of a lift gate, the like survival rate just plummets. And so digging into that, that was my, 
that was my journey into understanding and asking questions and being curious and but then it's like well what problems could we solve and that's really where we started with the with the drones um mm-hmm. and then we could fast forward to today and kind of where we're at like uh, or we can talk about the fundraising journey and what that looks like yeah definitely i mean i see that uh, we're again running a little bit uh, out of time but how long did it take you and your team to put together the, the first prototype um, so, I mean, the first prototype, and that's what's so so alluring about drones, is that uh, the first prototype we had together in, in weeks, um, really getting to a place where we were excited about the, like, it took us about three, four years before we had a really st- uh, strong, stable aircraft maintenance program, and we, were, we had moved away from consumer drones, um, I mean, I think it'd probably be helpful people people to understand now, like we're the first and only FAA approved company out there for heavy lift, uh, meaning each aircraft carries 57 pounds of seed link or seed vessels. Um, mm-hmm. And then we operate in swarms. Uh, so first and only FAA approved on that and then beyond visual line of sight. So they, the operators don't have to see it. Um, and the, the aircraft are huge. They're about eight feet in diameter to carry a 57 pound payload. Um, we operate them in groups of two to five, depending upon the, the size of the landing. And uh, the way that they execute is that we have done a pre-flight with a smaller aircraft utilizing LIDAR and multispectral imaging. Uh, so that's step one. We collect all of the data points, which is a sort of looks like a cloud, if you will, if you can kind of picture something from the matrix, um, where it's a point cloud that is like, here's all the trees that are, may or may not be up on site. Here's the slope of the hill. And the point of that is pre-program the drones in the second step so they don't run into these things. And then also remove all the areas where the trees are not going to grow well. So gravel roads, lakes, mature forests, rock faces, any remaining vegetation that's really too high, it's going to shade out and kill the tree. We can remove that at about a third of an acre scale. And then that, and then from there we generate our flight paths. And then two, the third step is two truck, two trucks, two trailers, six aircraft come out to site. We fly them in those groups of two to five. They they run the pre-programmed missions. There's somebody at the computer, somebody that can take over with joysticks, um, the RC controllers if uh, if they see or hear anything they don't like. Um, and then they come down, they land, and then we swap out the batteries, reload them like a NASCAR pit crew, and get them back up in the air. So that's that's on the drone side, kind of what our operations look like today and what we built out over time. Um, what we came to learn, however, uh, and then again, it's a continual process of evolution and learning, is that there is a lack of seed um, because the industry, the, the reforestation industry is really focused on orchard grown seed. It's orchards have been bred through time to grow tree, you know, provide cones that have trees that grow fast, they're straight, they're tall, and they're wide. There's a lot of board feet coming off of them. That's the purpose. But we have not made as an industry the investments in the additional acreage required to meet what is today the amount of acreage that's burning, the lack of natural regeneration. And uh, we've had the science, but have not made the investments. And so it takes 20 to 40 years to spin up new orchards. So what we do at Silva Seed now is uh, we collect uh, seed. We collect it locally uh, from local seed zones. That's really important because the seed closest to a fire is the seed that's going to grow best for evolved genetic reasons. We process it. 
Um, and then that's how we, the, and we've expanded to become the largest private seed bank west of Colorado. And that seed is really scarce. So land managers, uh, and we work with timber companies, tribal nations, who are some of the largest generators of offsets uh, in the U.S. Um, we work with nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy, um, state and federal agencies, and then small family forests. Um, if they're affected by a fire, like first, you know, second call to us it should be really like uh, would be our strong preference because we can out actually help. In some cases, like last year, we we're actually out collecting cones while fires were burning in the area. And now we had to move crews to keep them at safe distances from the fires. But that really helped us make sure that we have the seed because trees don't provide fertile seed in the cones each and every year mm-hmm. for reasons that science is still figuring out. Um, they provide it every two to seven years. And so that's a that's a really scarce resource. And if it's a mast year, meaning like it's a big, bountiful, lots of cones, they're very well fertilized year, it's really important to gather all we can to process and then turn it into uh, stored seed. So that's what we do at Silva Seed. And then we grow um, grow in the nursery and uh, and then combine those two, uh, both the seedlings as well as the um, uh, the seed vessels dropped by the drones. Uh, into into projects but it's about a year or two delay to get the seedlings um Mm -hmm. because you got to grow them in the nursery and you don't know the seed zone yet and where the fires have occurred so this the drones get out there right away the um and they get it there before any competitive vegetation that grow up faster than your trees and kill it because most often the word that people use when they see the landscape after fire is moonscape and um it just looks like that so that's you know we come back then later with the seedlings that we've grown in the nursery and they have a different advantage than the seed as far as like surviving drought and predators. So yeah, that's, that's so, kind of where we're at today. Well, what's the success rate uh, in average that, uh, that you have compared to other more traditional forms of uh, reforestation? I mean, you, you said to, to speak about that is like really significant or? Yeah. So, I mean, we, yeah, I have the worst answer for this, which is it depends, right? We work in, <laughs> uh, we're FAA approved for every state west of Colorado. And so like it, the survival establishment rates are going to vary dramatically um, based off of like, what's the soil? What's the quality of the soil? What's the environment? How much water is available? What are the predators? But what we do is we publish at about a two year delay uh, to benefit our, um, our early adopters. And so we publish, uh, and we're the only company that publishes that we're aware of um, mm-hmm. with Tree Planters Notes, which is a U.S. Forest Service journal. Um, and so what we, I mean, what we can say is that um, we are we are we are better than raw seed uh, being dropped from a helicopter because we mm-hmm. utilize less seed and achieve uh, comparable or better results. And uh, it, it, nature has a different approach to this, which is like if you look at various tree seed species, like the survival and establishment rate, yeah, sequoia can emit like millions of seeds and one turns into a tree, right? And so like there's very much, there's different evolutionary strategies, yeah. but what we're trying to do is maximize this, the establishment rate with the least amount of seed. And so with each iteration, we get better and better, but we also learn things about different areas with different predators, different soil types, different stressors, such as yeah. desiccation, drying out. So those are some of the, the pieces. So it's a, it's a, there's a desire for like a one specific answer, but like 
it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, like it's not say, black and white, it's gray, and uh, it's a learning process, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's gray, but, uh... and it's like, are we getting better? Are we seeing improvements? <laughs> and so that's really where we track, and that's really where we publish uh, specifically for that purpose. Yeah. So are you getting greener and greener because you start from a moonscape uh, landscape and you are trying to uh, to make it green. So what are the, the maybe if, if you don't mind to share a little bit, but uh, the current and expected economics of uh, drone seed, I mean, like what's the business model and you, you touch on the fact that now you have the seed, you have the reforestation and through the drones, and then uh, you also have the um, carbon offset. Uh, so what's the weight on, on, on each of them in terms of uh, in the balance sheet or the PNL? Yeah, so the, I mean, I, the, the thing that I would say is most specific to us that is uh, helpful in understanding why we'll be successful is that we control things throughout the entire value chain that are scarce. And so having things that are scarce and expanding and increasing their supply benefits everybody. Um, seed is scarce nursery grow space is scarce. And this is this is backed up by, you can see articles in Wired and Fast Company. Um, there's a pay, white paper with uh, a large number of academics, US Forest Service, state, ner state uh, agencies, and Nature Conservancy, American Forest, all pointing to, we need to increase grow space and seed collection. Um, and then we're in National Geographic saying the same. Uh, then then you've got the, the tools for labor uh labor is scarce um this is a really difficult job how do we get people to go out there and do that and how do we give them better tools so they can do this over and over and over repeatedly and not only just so they can keep doing it but they can be way more efficient at it and we can do more reforestation faster because we have a really big reforestation debt of like acres that nature hasn't hasn't regenerated forest and humans haven't either and so it ends up you know nature doesn't do a vacuum so it just ends up as 10 foot tall bush And then the last piece is like offsets are actually scarce. High quality removal offsets are difficult to find. And um, that, is, uh, that is because of the size of the footprints. And then the, um, the, the emerging technologies that are pretty early stage today, uh, in many cases around like, uh, if we you know, look at the various technologies that are out there and they're still at a very, in, in a very small scale. And so, um, There's avoided emissions, but the conversation is really moved to great, sure, avoided, but also how do we remove? How do we how do we how do we capture and um, how do we capture that carbon and pull it out of the atmosphere? Because thought experiment, humans for whatever reason are just gone from the planet tomorrow. Everything else is there. We have still already pumped so much carbon in the atmosphere that all of the ecosystems will go through uh, the worst effects of climate change regardless so we actually have to have removal not just avoided and um that's that's something that you know we we also have control over so that's something that is from you know from a business strategy perspective um building growing expanding the scarcity in each of those areas is, is really what our focus is um because that's the mission of the company make reforestation scalable mitigate the worst so effects of climate change so I mean, you didn't really cover any any figures, but uh, I guess uh, your answer was uh, was right on the on that sense. <laughs> so finally, maybe you have a number to to share with us. I mean, what's the, the size of the the market opportunity? I mean, and how are you planning to to scale your operation? Uh, what's the steps to achieve it? I mean, what what is like keeping you up at night right now? 
Um, so the size of the market opportunity fits with um, with Refinitiv, which is the, like there's both the compliance and the uh, voluntary market and the, that 800 billion plus global market size. And then there's the bottom up, which is like wh- who needs seedlings? And it's those land managers and, you know, large numbers. Uh, there's some papers that have come out and basically um, there's a 3 billion seedling need and a 1 billion production capacity across the U.S. So we're like 2 billion seedlings short. Um, you know, those are really high numbers. I'm being very like uh, generalists there. Um, but that's the, there is a specific need there on what that looks like. And that also identifies the, the market landscape. Um, so, the, I mean, those would be the two things that I'd point to as far as how we think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and really like, in addition to that, I would say like, we think about the communities and the people being impacted by the effects of wildfire. So, uh, a big emphasis for us is how do we, how do we interact with those communities? How do we, how do we train? How do we recruit from, how do we, um, how, how do we, how do we work with frontline communities? And this is one particular frontline, which is wildfire how do we help improve those relationships with the ecosystems? Um, and so, you know, it's a big, it's a big focus point for us where we grow to hire. Um, and then it's also a big focus point for how we collect seed, uh, how we interface with local communities, recruit more cone collectors, et cetera. So um, for, for people interested, like you can come check out like our job page or for any other climate tech company out there. That's my second goal, right? Drive people to climate climate-based, my climate journey, uh, others that are out there that are, you know, whether you're accountant, marketing or otherwise, we would love to see people spending all of their time, their eight to 10 hours a day, uh, not just this, uh, not just their volunteer time focused on climate. So how do you, I mean, you guess, um, uh, and it's almost my last question for this, uh, this part mm-hmm. of the interview, but, uh, uh, you guys are active now in the US. Uh, you mentioned like, uh, you know, a few states. Uh, are you planning to expand uh, abroad, um, maybe Europe, maybe South America? I don't know. Where do you guys are looking at after? What's next for uh, Drone Seed? Yeah, so we operate in the US, uh, Canada, and New Zealand. Um, uh, prior to COVID, we were looking at um, opera, uh, opportunities in Australia. Um, and really, I mean, that's been a focus on temperate conifers in those ecosystems and New Zealand being sort of like the mirror image of the Northwest, uh, United States. And, um, yeah, but we operate West of basically like West of Colorado, um, in the U S and Canada. And, um, that's kind of our geographic footprint. So that's, what's kind of what's next for us. Um, and then what I'm, what I'm excited about are, uh, announcements coming out about our projects, uh, with, uh, offset buyers um, that are uh, making announcements um, and, and others. So uh, excited to be you know, sharing and announcing on those fronts. Thank you so much. So what's your uh, personal question here? Like, what's your personal opinion on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, what would you, uh, what would be your words to people who are afraid of all the terrible news and already visible consequences of, of climate change. And you mentioned, you know, yeah, flooding, but also wildfire, especially in, uh, in, in California and in America. So are we doomed or, I mean, what would you, what would you tell them? I, 
I think it's one of those things that like, I think everybody sees what the data says and the data is not positive, but I think focusing on that aspect is not what motivates people. And I, and I think for people who would, uh, especially for people who are on their startup journey um, or are looking to really sort of advocate on behalf of climate, pointing to the, pointing to the doomism is not what gets people excited pointing to the solar punk future that we can have if we fight for it is what gets people excited. And I think so like ministry for the future, Kim Stanley Robinson, great book. And the first third is dark, but the, the second two thirds are bright. And I am excited about that future. I am excited about uh, people who are familiar with sort of the hydrofoils and racing yachts. Like I would love to see passenger ships that are clipping along on those and I can plug into Wi-Fi and do like a one or two day across the Atlantic instead of a flight. And uh, I get Wi-Fi and it's like, that's exciting to me. I would love to do blimp rides. I would love to have leather made out of mushrooms. I would love to see uh, wild animals crossing across freeways with ha by having their own sort of overpass and having those migrational uh, operations and be better integrated. I would love to have, all, there's so many things that can be part of a bright future. And that is what gives people, I think, a hell yes, as opposed to a hell no. I mean, that comes, there's a lot of psychology that goes into what is kind of a meme there, but the, 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 there's a flight or flight that comes with doomism and most people flight. And so if you're pitching an investor, you're trying to recruit talent or whatnot, and you're telling people how the world is so in trouble and royally screwed, you're, you trigger, you're triggering a flight response and it's more convenient for people to ignore it. But, it, but what was instrumental for us was showing the visuals of what would, it, before we built them, what, is, what does it look like to see a swarm of drones reforesting a hillside that's been burned? What do the vehicles look like? We spent money when we did not have a lot of money to spend on the CGI when we were in Techstars. And we got some uh, great visuals of what that would look like. In fact, we had to tell people that they, that they were CGI because they look so realistic. And then we also had some great, like, there's a reason people get excited about car concept art. We got some kind of car concept art of like, what would the vehicles look like in the field? We hadn't designed or built them, but people latched onto that and were so excited and told their friends about it. And that is, I think, like what we need to be focused on. Yes, it's important to say like, there is a very, very heavy chew about to drop, but we can all run over here to this very bright future if we fight for it. Um, if we vote for it, if we spend our waking hours going after it, um, but it takes it takes changes and it takes desire and intent to focus there. But it's a lot easier. It's a lot more fun. It's a lot easier to do if you focus on what you're excited about. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. So, how can the community of uh, investors, founders, uh, experts uh, that are listening to the podcast around the world can help you? Yeah. Um, send us top talent. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> uh, and if not us, I've mentioned climate base and my climate journey, like those are great communities, uh, that are working on climate specifically. Um, and then, yeah, uh, as, as, uh, for those that are in the space that are measuring their carbon footprint, their scope one through three emissions, et cetera, like, uh, always, uh, interested in more conversations about how we can help fulfill carbon negative and neutral commitments. Um, we have projects coming online. And then for investors, like investors love to see that attraction. So 
um, as there's interest uh, can be in touch. And uh, we've raised our Series A, uh, 36 million. It's in TechCrunch. We've got a star-studded cast of people who have uh, uh, backing us, and we're really fortunate and lucky to have that. Really excited about that. Um, and uh, you know, next step, you know, that that tells everybody, well, what comes after A it comes B. So that's where we're headed uh, next. And uh, for investors where that's a fit, like, um, yeah, you can come talk to us. Also, we're really interested to see like what happens with some of the DAOs. Um, and we pattern match that to angelist syndicates. And in the past, uh, when we got started, angelist syndicates were something where uh, this is a longer answer, so I'll try to be brief here, but they, they, were, they were stigmatized and negative. Like you went to syndicates if you couldn't raise money from a real VC. Well, now that's not the case. Like every like everybody has a syndicate, and it's a great way of aggregating capital and having a whole like fifty people excited about what you're up to and using their network to benefit you, which is exactly what we saw. But I see some of the same type of things emerging with climate DAOs and others that are focused on tokenization of carbon, and and I guess what we're what we're looking at carefully is kind of where the um, where what are what is the carbon footprint of various blockchain technologies? Does it make sense? Um, we're looking at other aspects to to understand uh, and see where there's value add and how that builds. But it, it looks similar to us as Angela Syndicates, as people in a big community excited about seeing something exist in the world and grouping together their assets to do it. So um, to that extent, we're also interested in, in having those dialogues, but we will have some hard questions around like, what is the carbon like footprint of your blockchain? Like what or other technology, right? So, yeah. Now there is plenty of uh, things interesting there to to do in climate tech and at the same time like how to mitigate, uh, you know, the uh, all of that. So any question that I did not ask you that I should have for this first part of the interview? I would just love to give people books um, uh, and resources. Um, so uh, I've mentioned uh, I've mentioned Lean Startup. I've mentioned uh, and our, that was great for product management and sort of creating your first prototype and figuring out how to tell, get people to tell you of a terrible idea before you spend five years on it. Um, one second there. Um, hard thing about hard things is uh, another great book about what the actual entrepreneur's journey is. Uh, I mean, most books are like management books where like they take a successful company and slice and dice it. And I appreciate uh, Horowitz's approach identifying just that and then saying like this is how i screwed everything you know up and some in some cases fixed it and all the pain and struggle and strife that that went through so i found that to be really enlightening and then multipliers uh for how to how to lead people think about like great you've now gone from three people to five people to seven people and then the last one is a method for hiring how do you recruit people in how do you create a real hiring process um those are all i would say like foundational books for 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 us thank you so much for uh, grant for your time uh, and your incredible insights uh, on the industry i'm very very uh, passionately excited about you know to see so many brilliant people like you putting so much effort to move the ball towards a, a better and cleaner world so thank you so much for sharing uh, your time with us uh, tonight yeah uh, my my pleasure thank you very much for uh, doing what you're doing and, and moving people into the climate appreciate it Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support. 
and our donation, our sponsorship, to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.